uh, our sermon series is The Christ Has Come. And I, it's my privilege today to just continue on the series. And I want to start by uh, thinking about a question, this question, what is God like? What is God like? Because there's been a lot of theories out there about what God is like. Let me um, maybe share a few with you. This is a statue of Prometheus, and um, according to Greek mythology, Prometheus was a titan who created humans, stole fire from the gods to give to humans, and to punish him for that, Zeus, the head honcho god, uh, organized for him to, um, made arrangements for him to be chained to a rock, and um, for an eagle to come and peck out his liver and eat it, um, and, and then each night his liver would regenerate and the uh, eagle would come back and pick it again, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. According to this view, and, and this is, you know, this sort of thing is um, often seen in uh, various mythologies around the world, uh, not an malevolent god, uh, but a malevolent god. Just cut me some slack. It's been a hard week. <laughs> you copy and paste, but you don't fix everything up. All right, so a malevolent God, that's one way that sometimes people have imagined God or gods or whatever their belief system is, or at least if not malevolent, like morally ambiguous, like, eh, I'm not sure if this God's always good, kind of a bit like, depends on what kind of day they're having or whatever, you know, a malevolent God. Uh, this here is... Um, it's referred to as the Jefferson Bible. It's a Bible that belonged to uh, one of the early U.S. presidents called Thomas Jefferson. And Thomas Jefferson, he didn't like anything. He didn't really believe in anything that was, suggest that God got involved. In other words, things that were kind of miraculous or, um, you know, we might say supernatural or that kind of thing. And so he took to the Bible with a pair of scissors and he cut out the bits he didn't like, which actually is more like I think he cut out the bits he liked and pasted them in another one because that's a lot easier. It basically ended up with the teachings of Jesus. He liked the teachings of Jesus, but he didn't like any of what he thought was sort of this miraculous stuff going on. He was very rationalistic. I think he and his sort of cohort of thinkers around that time, they imagined an uninvolved God, a God who's kind of distant. Uh, deism is sometimes the fancy word for that, an uninvolved God. These are parasitic worms. Uh, I don't even know how to pronounce them, um, how, how to pronounce the name. Um, I did look it up, can't pronounce it, got busy, didn't check the pronunciation. So whatever this parasitic worm is, uh, this was mentioned by a famous actor, English actor Stephen Fry. It was also um, public, like, known to be an atheist, and he was being um, questioned about his beliefs a few years ago, and they asked him, you know, why, why are you an atheist? Why don't you believe in God? And he talked about this as an example where this, this parasitic worm, its whole existence is lived inside the, a human eye, and it causes all sorts of suffering and pain for the person who, unfortunate person who has this, these worms. And that's pretty much its whole point. And he's sort of saying, basically, it's an absent God. 
a non-existent God because when you look at all the suffering and pain and everything that goes on in the world, that's what he concludes. So, you know, when you think about it, all these versions of what or answers to the question, what is God like, are connected in some way to suffering, the hard stuff. It's like, you know, there's all all sorts of suffering in the world, and so people imagine that maybe um, we have a malevolent God or a morally ambiguous God, or or maybe um, we have a God who's uninvolved. Bad things happen, but God is not involved. Or we have a God who is just absent. There is no God, and that's why there's suffering. So I want us to think about this question today. We are in the Advent season, the lead up to Christmas, and we're reflecting on what Christmas means, what it's all about, um, specifically by thinking about the coming of the Christ. And the Christ is a Greek, it comes from the Greek word, um, which is just a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one, which is a bit like saying a king. And so we're thinking about this, this king, King Jesus, who was born and we celebrate at Christmas time. Um, and, and trying to understand how the Old Testament or how the ancient Hebrew scriptures point to Jesus. Anyway, park all that for a moment. And I'm going to play you a little video. Ethiopian Orthodox teaching a church to be a church should be enveloped by a forest. It should resemble the Garden of Eden. Hundred years ago, the highland was one big continuous forest. That big continuous forest has been eaten up by agriculture. It is a church who has protected this forest and who has safeguarded them from destruction. The church forests of Ethiopia, I think, are really fascinating because they have all these churches and then these forests around them, and then, as you saw there, just sort of desert, wasteland. It's been over-farmed, but the church has protected these areas around the churches, and it's all tied into their theology of Adam and creation care and all this kind of thing. Apart from being just super fascinating, though, the point I really want to get to here is this is the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Now, it might not surprise you that there are churches and Christians in Ethiopia, there are Christians all around the world, and the church is now bigger than it's ever been, and most of the Christians, the bulk of them, are in Africa and in Asia. So the fact that there are Christians in Ethiopia, no surprise there, but this is an Ethiopian Orthodox church. It is considered one of the oldest denominations in all of Christendom. It goes right back to the beginning, pretty much. And you, so then the question is, okay, 
it's not just that it, the, the gospel went there in the last couple of hundred years. It went there at the beginning. How did the, the gospel get there in the beginning? Have a look at, well, get some answers out there. Uh, <laughs> you're probably right. Was that Nancy? Nancy would definitely be right. Have a look at Acts 8. No, no, no. What, what did you say, Acts 8, Nancy? Yeah, you did. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. It's all right. No worries. Um, yeah, have a look at Acts chapter 8. <coughs> right. Um, I'm just going to start reading in verse 27. Uh, it's talking about this guy, Philip, one of the early followers of Jesus, and it says this. So Philip started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot, and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And this is the passage of scripture the unit was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? for his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. This is how the Ethiopian Orthodox Church understands how the gospel made it to them is that you have this guy, he's uh, a high official, he's um, in Ethiopia, he's a eunuch, that's how they rolled in those days, in that culture. But he's interestingly too, he's a follower of the God of Israel in some way. And scholars debate about how far did he go? Did he go all the way? Was he like completely a uh, Jewish convert? Or was he what they call a God-fearer sometimes in the New Testament? Um, regardless, he, he at some level he is he worships the God of Israel, and he's sitting in his chariot. Like I said, he's he's um, you know pretty high up there, and he's got this. Uh, it's not it's not a Bible. He's got a scroll, and it's not the scroll of the whole Hebrew Scriptures, which is what we call the Old Testament. It's the scroll of Isaiah. It might even be just a bit of Isaiah. But he's got a scroll. He's a baller. He's got a lot of money, and he's got he's got scrolls. Not, that's not something that everyone has. And um, he unrolls it, and, you, and he gets to this passage. Now, I wonder if this guy was actually reading just a little bit down the scroll, just a wee bit, and, and seeing this. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. He's a eunuch. He's got a lot of stuff, but he doesn't have a family. Can't have a family. And here in the, in the book of Isaiah or the scroll of Isaiah, God is saying to those people who can't have a family, I'll give you something better. 
you worship me, I've got something better in store for you. And maybe this eunuch is sitting there, and maybe the reason he worships the God of Israel is because he believes that in this God, there's a promise there for him that's better than anything he maybe doesn't have. And he's suffering. He's had his own challenges in life. And in this God, he sees a promise that is for him. Anyway, that's just a little bit further down the scroll. But he goes back up to the top of the scroll, and he's reading this part that we refer to usually as Isaiah 53, but there were no chapter markings or anything. He's just looking at the scroll, and he's trying to figure it out. And Philip somehow, I, I, I don't know whether it was being read aloud or what have you, but Philip somehow figures this out. The Spirit is definitely doing a lot with uh, Philip at the time, so maybe the Spirit's giving him all the nudges he needs. And he gets there, and he preaches the gospel or explains the gospel to this guy, this Ethiopian, and he comes to faith, gets baptized, and carries on his way off to Ethiopia, and, and the gospel goes with him. But it's interesting to me what Philip's kind of method or his text is as he shares the gospel. He doesn't have the New Testament, what we think of as the New Testament or our Bible. He doesn't, that wasn't written yet. Only the old, what we think of as the Old Testament had been written at that point. So he didn't have that. He couldn't go to the book of Romans. You might have heard of the Romans Road. This is kind of this classic way to um, explain the story of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, by going through different parts of the book of Romans. It didn't exist. And Philip doesn't even just talk about Jesus. Yeah, he does. But he uses the ancient Hebrew scriptures to explain Jesus. And, and he does that right from one of these passages here. There are all sorts of passages in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, that point towards Jesus. They are prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And so we're going to just read um, Isaiah 53, because this is the passage. This is the part of the scroll that the eunuch was looking at and scratching his head over. And this is the part of the scroll that Philip uses to lead this guy to Christ. This is the part of the scroll that he is pointing to Jesus. So he says, he reads this and he says, hey, let me tell you, this guy turned up and he, he's that. He's this. And that's how he came to faith. He preached the gospel from the Old Testament. Right. So let's have a look at what this passage actually says, apart from the couple of verses that are quoted there. In, in Acts. Okay, so actually, even though we refer to it as Isaiah 53 usually, because it's a famous passage, um, it actually starts in Isaiah 52, uh, verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised, lifted up, and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred by beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind 
a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the gospel. This is pointing us to Jesus. Now, you might think, okay, but before Jesus, how would they understand this? And I think there's a variety of interpretations. Obviously, this Ethiopian guy was struggling to understand it. So it wasn't easy, but it seems to be that the the general understanding was that this was a metaphor or a personification of Israel as a whole. That Israel was to kind of carry the sin of the world and suffer on behalf of the world. And I actually think that's true because one way to understand Jesus is to understand that he took the job of Israel, the the vocation or the job description, the calling on Israel, and he did it himself and did it right because none of us could do it right except Jesus. So Jesus takes that, that role on himself, and he bears the suffering and the evil and the sin of the world so we don't have to. And it takes us back to that question about what God is like and how people, when they're faced with suffering, whether in their own life or what they see on the news or what have you, how they then think about what God is like in light of that suffering. When we think about a king, you know, the Christ, the king, we think about a king, we don't think about someone being tortured. But Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. 
like one from whom people hide their faces. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. This is this king. And we think of what is God like and we imagine a king. We don't imagine a compassionate God, but that's what this God is like, a compassionate God. It doesn't answer the problem of why suffering exists and, and how God is dealing with suffering exactly, although it is in the person of Jesus. But it does tell us that God is not distant, that God is not uninvolved. God is a compassionate God. Let's break that word down a little bit. It's a Latin word originally. And uh, com here, the com part means with. And passio, suffering. Can I just kind of flag something here too? There's this whole thing that theologians talk about called impassibility. And it's confusing and weird, so we're not going to go on that tangent. What I want to focus on is how the Bible portrays who God is. Um, and this impassibility idea is related to this word suffering, but when we think about it like this, compassion is suffering with. And it culminates in the cross. That's Jesus dying on the cross. That's what we uh, remember at, at Easter. We also remember that he was brought to life again, which is just as important. That is the climax, but the mere coming of God, what we call the incarnation, I, can't even, I shouldn't even say mere, because that is part of the salvation picture. And we could talk about incarnation. It is incredible. And it all, means all sorts of things. It is part of what saves us. In other words, God the Son became a human being. And it, like I said, it means all sorts of stuff. There's all sorts of rich ramifications for what that means. But one of the things it means, just one of them, is that this is a compassionate God, a God who suffers with us. And maybe you, you're suffering. And you're wondering where God is. Now, if you're just trying to figure out what God is like by looking at the life and the world around you, you might get some ideas, but you might also get some wrong ideas. You might think God doesn't care, that he's uninvolved, or that he's somehow sending punishment on you, or any of these other ideas, maybe just God's not there. But actually, the Bible tells us if we really want to know what God is like, the technical term revelation, the fullest revelation, the best picture we get of what God is like is in the person of Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, we see God is a compassionate God. You see, a king's greatness usually we think of as in his power. I don't know what you make of King Charles. Like, I don't know whether that's awe-inspiring exactly. <laughs> but he's trying, you know, like he's definitely putting it out there that th he's powerful. I mean, it, it was, it's cool. I, I said some of you love this stuff and I, I'm okay with it. Like, whatever. I don't know. Some of you hate it, but whatever. Kings, right? Crowns, big robes. Lots of ceremony, power. A king's greatness is in his power. 
that actually this king, this Messiah, the Christ, this king, the Christ's greatness is in his humility, in his willingness to leave his position, if you like, in a sense, leave it, and just suffer with us. And that's a, an incredible picture of God. It doesn't take all suffering and wrap it up in a nice little bow, but it does say something powerful about God that we might not have just nutted out by ourselves. In fact, I don't think we would have at all. We needed God to arrive in the person of Jesus to understand that God is a compassionate God, to really understand it. There's this guy called um, Father Damien that I want to tell you about. But to set this up, let me talk a little bit about leprosy. Leprosy, uh, for the longest time, people thought leprosy was a disease of the human tissue. That it sort of ate away and like this, this person is a person with leprosy. Um, and, and it sort of was believed that it kind of eats away at your flesh. And so your hands and, and various parts of your body start to look like this. Uh, a missionary called Paul Brand in the 20th century in India, he was also a, a leprosy expert. He was a doctor. He was a missionary doctor. He figured out it's not, it's not a disease of the, of the human tissue that kind of rots away. It's a disease of the nerves. It's a disease that means we can't feel pain. And the problem with that is that pain is uh, alerting you that something's not right. And so people with leprosy, they could be getting cuts and burns and their fingers could be, you know, being bent in the wrong directions and they don't have a warning signal to tell them and then infections set in and eventually it rots away. But it's because they can't feel pain. Anyway, this was, before this, it was also believed this was highly contagious. It is, it, it is an infectious disease, but it, it's not as infectious as it was once thought. But the practice was, if you had leprosy, you were put in a leper con colony, like quarantine. I mean, it's kind of a nice way of putting quarantine. It, it was like you're, you live out your day separated from everybody else. Leprosy came um, from people coming to Hawaii. Leprosy came to Hawaii, and a lot of people got leprosy. And the king, Kamehameha, at the time, um, set up this... A leper colony on Molokai, one of the um, Hawaiian islands. Uh, this is this is it in the 1800s. This was um, starting from 1866 into the 20th century. There was a leper colony, so anyone that caught leprosy in Hawaii was sent there, and it wasn't supposed to be, you know, a cesspool of like human misery. Although you could kind of imagine it would be, but it was pretty much neglected. It was under-resourced, and things got kind of out of hand and out of control, and it was a miserable place. And some people put up their hands to go and help. There was a sister Maria. She went and helped. And there was this other guy, Father Damien. And sister Maria, she did it at a great cost to herself, uh, but she never um, contracted leprosy. So I just want to focus on this other guy, um, Father Damien. Uh, this is Father Damien, a Belgian dude in 1873, and he put up his hand to say, 
yep, I think he was probably in his mid-30s at that point. Yeah, I'll, I'll go and live there. And he lived there, and along with Sister Maria and others like them, um, they dressed the wounds of people with leprosy. They were friends with them, hung out with them. They run their um, funeral services, built their coffins, dug their graves, lived life with them. Uh, at the end of his life, 1889, he looked like this. Um, you can't see it all in this picture, but he had, his arm was permanently in a sling. His hands were pretty gnarly looking. His face is um, becoming disfigured. He contracted lep leprosy about six years before this photo, um, and then he, he died. And this was him on his deathbed. And uh, when he was talking about his, his calling, he said to a friend, I make myself a leper with the lepers to gain all to Jesus Christ. Sometimes called being incarnational because it gives us a picture of the incarnation that God made himself a leper to be with us lepers or made himself a sinner to be with us sinners. He entered into a, a world where there is suffering and pain to suffer with us. This is a compassionate God. And now, Father Damien, he's great. He's considered great. And this is a statue of him outside the Capitol building in Hawaii. And this is the pattern. The God the Son enters into creation, becomes a human being, lives a life of suffering, is disfigured, bears our sin, feels all of that and suffers with us, and God exalts him and lifts him up. And that is the pattern. This is a compassionate God. Most uh, biblical scholars will tell you that when you get to Philippians 2, there's a section that they think is probably an early Christian song, like a worship song. So before you had the New Testament, you had guys like Philip going to the Old Testament and preaching the gospel from there, from Isaiah 53 and other places like that. You also had Christians communicating what they believed to each other through songs that they were singing. And then this particular song got incorporated into the book of Philippians. And most scholars will say that this seems to be heavily shaped by Isaiah 53. Notice what this song says. Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Think the tortured Christ. Therefore, because of that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is the same pattern. God the Son came along into our world, came alongside us, suffered with us, bore our sin, didn't deserve it. And because of that, that's his greatness. His greatness is in his humility. His greatness is in his compassion. And so God lifted him up. What is God like? God is a compassionate God. Let's pray.
Christ Jesus, King of creation. We kneel before you and acknowledge you are King. We don't know why suffering happens exactly. I mean, we've got some ideas, but it doesn't always really satisfy us when we know we're in, in the middle of it and we're struggling or people around us are struggling. We don't know why, but because we get our clearest picture of what God is like through you, Jesus, we know that we have a compassionate God who feels the pain with us and suffers with us. We praise you because you are not aloof, you are not distant, you are not uninvolved, you are not absent, but you are very much present with us in our suffering. And this Christmas, may we be reminded of that. And just as you are compassionate, we pray that you will make us compassionate too. We pray this in your name, King Jesus Christ Jesus, and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.